Chapter 1, Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waberhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trinsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. Adventure has its own style. It's made up of tall trees, unpaved trails, and at the center, the most capable Subaru Forester yet. The 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness. It comes with 9.2 inches of ground clearance paired with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and advanced dual-function X-Mode. Discover adventure on a deeper level. The 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness. Visit Subaru.com wilderness to explore the family of rugged Subaru Wilderness models. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. It's a very modest profession. You don't need much much for it. It's not like atomic physics, where you need to be equipped with calculus and a, and a plethora of complexity. In architecture, you need a piece of paper, a pencil, your mind, and look far beyond the horizon towards your dream. That's why architects are driven by optimism. I I always say, you know, if you want to be an architect, that's the only thing you need to have. If you're a pessimist, you might as well not go into it because it'll destroy you because architecture doesn't work that way. (laughs) That's prize-winning architect Daniel Liebeskind. Despite their humble beginnings in paper and pencil, his buildings are dramatic, unconventional, and memorable. They include the Jewish Museum in Berlin, the Denver Art Museum, war museums in both Manchester, England, and Dresden, Germany, as well as his latest project, a museum dedicated to Albert Einstein, now under construction in Jerusalem. I'm so glad you could be with me today because we talk a lot about communicating, but we've never talked about this very fundamental way of communicating, which is through architecture. I'm so happy to be with you, Alan. Yes, architecture is a big communicator, of course. The biggest one probably in the world. And you're probably the person who communicates with architecture more than most architects, I think, from from the way I hear you talk. Well, every building and every city speaks to us. You know, we, we love cities. We love our streets, our homes. So we know that architecture is speaking back to us because we communicate with it. You've even connected architecture to music. That and you're you're one you're one to know about that because you were a master musician as as a boy already. How old were you when you started playing the accordion? Oh my God! I started at maybe at five. You know, I I played it uh, because I couldn't play the piano, but it was my piano. So yes. Why couldn't you have a piano? You know, I grew up in Poland after uh, after the war, uh, and my parents were Holocaust survivors, and. You know, the, the rabid antisemitism around us was so high that my parents were too scared to bring the piano through the courtyard because of our neighbors. So they brought me the secret piano in, the, in a suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> what, they were afraid of the jealousy of the neighbors? Jealousy, anger, yes. Yes, yeah. the Jews are bringing in the piano, so they didn't want it. Yeah. So they snuck it in in, a, in another form, so I was destined to play uh, the accordion. Arlene, who interviewed you for her book about kids from the Bronx because you wound up in the Bronx. She got the impression that your mother said, 
that you it was easy easier to leave town if there was trouble with an accordion than a piano. <laughs> well, that's also true. You know, the Jews are used to having suitcases because uh, you know we we have seen in our history the need to escape rapidly. So yes, the accordion made a good suitcase. So how is architecture like music? Well, architecture is like music in many ways. First of all, let's remember that our sense of balance is not in the eye, but in the inner ear. So, you know, when we walk, when we enter spaces, uh, our orientation is uh, really predominantly through the ear. And uh, it's not by coincidence that uh, from the Greeks and Pythagoreans uh, right on through other cultures, uh, uh, music was the metaphor, or actually not just a metaphor, but the idea of harmony in architecture was mm. brought in by the proportion of strings, vibrating strings, and the proportions of those strings to geometric space. So that's why we have the harmony of the spheres and we have the harmony of space as well. It's it's very uh, long and, and, and clear history of architecture and music. And your father was a talented draftsman, wasn't he? He was, you know, at the, you know, he always wanted to be an artist, but, uh, you know, the history didn't allow him to be an artist. He was a working man in factories and so on, but he painted and, and he painted very well. In fact, I remember when I had, uh, he, he had an exhibition, uh, I think in the Bronx Museum, and I brought some of my teachers who are famous architects and they said, oh my God. Your father's mm-hmm. really, you know, we know where you come from. And as a boy, were you drawing? All the time. Oh, my God. All the time. Uh, since I can remember. Music, uh, playing an instrument and drawing were, to me, my only occupations that I can remember. The other comparison you make to architecture that's so interesting to me is storytelling. You see architecture as a form of storytelling. Now, most of us wouldn't make that connection because the building sits there and it doesn't seem to talk. In what way does it tell a story? Well, look, take the stupidest building you can find on your street, you know, a a kind of faceless facade, some sort of corporate box. It it speaks to you. It says, basically, I have nothing to tell you, but it tells you that. You know, know, it's like a a Beckett or UNESCO, you know, uh, play, very short, five seconds, and, and the meaning is there. But great buildings have always told stories, you know, great cathedrals, great spaces, great cities. Uh, think of the Greek columns, you know, the Ionic column was with those volutes was supposed to represent the woman with her hair. Oh, That's why you have those I, curves. I didn't know that. So, yeah, the Greeks understood architecture as a storytelling and they even on their pediments presented the story in a very explicit form, like a war between the centaurs and the heroes. So, yes, uh, I've always believed that uh, architecture is a storytelling profession. That's another thing that you may get genetically, because I I just read in Arlene's book, as I reread your story in it, that your grandfather was an itinerant storyteller. Is that <laughs> yeah. right? It's true. It's strange. But he walked from shtetl to shtetl telling stories. That was his, you know, I think by profession he was a carpenter, but I think he basically was a storyteller and he walked from place to place telling the stories. So explain to me how I experienced a story as I walk through one of your creations. Well, look, a door is the beginning of the story. When you enter a building, even before you enter a door, you are already in a kind of overture. The Jewish Museum I actually, in Berlin, I actually created a kind of overture because you enter the building through the underground of that museum. And it's a kind of dark overture, which is three 
three different kind of vistas. One goes towards a dead end, which is the Holocaust. One goes towards the Garden of Exile, which is the exile of Berliners from Berlin, Jews from Berlin, and Berlin from itself. And the longest uh, axis is the visibility of continuity. The stairs. So right away, people understand. They don't have to read about it. They don't have to know anything about it. But they see in front of them a kind of unfolding drama. And and uh, people intuitively understand uh, what they see and how, how to m- sort of uh, engage with the space. Yeah, I was very affected by the Jewish Museum. And there was one room in particular which was very tall, three or four stories tall, with just a little window at the top. Otherwise, it was dark inside. And it certainly gave you an experience. There was no doubt about that. Have you talked to people who've been in it and tried to find out if their experiences were similar? Do people have different sets of experiences? Do they hear a different story as they go through it or or the same one? Well, I'm I'm sure they do, you know, because when I design a building, I don't try to impose some limited idea of, of, of uh, that, that, that is verbal. It's an idea which is in space and in time, and it's open to interpretation. And I think this is why people do have experiences, because it's not just a, a metaphor. It's not just something you will. It's about the acoustics of the space, the light in the space, the proportions, the material of the space. That's really the language of architecture, because, you know, we cannot use words in architecture. We can use only those those things which which speak in their own way. Your shapes are so unconventional when you compare them to a boxy house, you know, or a boxy office building. They curve, they bend, they jut out at angles. Sometimes from the outside, I wonder what's holding it up. (laughs) Well, you know, I've departed from the one angle, which is the 90-degree angle. Think about it. There were 359 other angles <laughs> and other possibilities. <laughs> so I have been always been fascinated why people have gravitated to something so narrow. Because when we look at Baroque architecture, architecture of the pyramids, architecture of Stonehenge, architecture of China, we see how many diverse uh, ideas of geometry there are. And that's what I love. I love geometry and I love the sense of being able to express the spaces with with the richness of, of geometry and of the materials. You told Arlene a wonderful story about how when you went to study architecture for the first time, you were making designs using a T-square, but when you used a T-square at home, the table you were working on had rounded corners. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, my, I lived in a you know, two-room apartment with my sister and my parents. And, you know, there was one table, which was a kitchen dining table, which was a small formica table that had kind of rounded edges. And after, you know, you clean the table after after supper and and you put your, you know, paper on it and the T-square. And then when I was sliding the T-square along that edge, I never knew exactly when did I get to the curve? Was it already one degree off? So... You know, it was always very frustrating, but then I realized, oh my God, it's offering me possibilities of other angles. I don't have to stick around that straight edge. I can really move the T-square in different directions. And that's when I discovered how wonderful architecture can really be. Did you then begin to use those curves and strange angles? And what what kind of reaction did you get from your professors? Well, I had incredible professors. You know, I had John Haydock, Peter Eisenman, Richard Meyer, great architects who 
who actually were amused by what I did. Maybe they didn't fully approve of it, but they were were amused that there were other possibilities in these young architects. So as you develop these unusual angles and curves and so on, are you doing it by hand? Are you using a computer? How do you how do you work? I don't use a computer. You know, I have the iPad. That's about as much as far as I go. But I I really been, you know I love the traditional pencil. It's as good as a computer, and it doesn't break down, and you don't need to charge it. <laughs> Just a pencil, and and of course you need a ruler to be accurate. At some point, you need to have the straight edge. You need to have the curves perfectly drawn. You don't need more than that. It's a very modest profession. You don't need much much for it. It's not like atomic physics where you need to be equipped with calculus and a, and a plethora of complexity. In architecture, you need a piece of paper, a pencil, your mind, and look far beyond the horizon towards your dreams. So see if you, you can help me understand your process a little bit. You're talking about an experience as you look at the building, then you go through the door and you have an experience inside the building. Your shapes are so unusual that I imagine there's some kind of tension between the shape of the outside and the use of the inside. Does one come before the other in your imagination? Do you, do you, do you start with the outside and then go in or the other way around or both at the same time? They have to be simultaneous, you know, because I never use the outside as a, like a fashion of cloth, you know, where you just drape something over the building and you can drape something interesting over a box and think, oh, this is an interesting building. It's got all these curves and angles. But when you enter, it's just a box that's been covered and and disguised. But I work from inside out in a way because I conceive that the utilitarian space is already the expressive space and then it gives a shape to the outside as well. So, yeah, it's it's really a different idea of architecture. Architecture is a full sculpture inside and outside. And it's really, as Corbusier said, the great master, he said, what is architecture? He said, all it is, is a perfectly proportioned volume in the sunlight. <laughs> That's a pretty short, short description of architecture, <laughs> but it works. So help me understand the, the inside part. I can understand a little bit as beautiful as your shapes are, that when you're inside the thing, there's kind of a reason for boxiness because we have to tend, we tend to need to walk on a level horizontal to the earth. And we would need sometimes to hang pictures on the walls, which is hard to do if they're at a 45 degree angle. Is there a tension in your mind there about using the space indoors? Of course, yes. and, And the shape of it? Of course, you have to be very sensible. You know, you, you cannot just uh, depart uh, into just a realm of fantasy. You have to understand what you're building for. But I've built spaces that, for example, have an acute angle. Two walls really collide at the end to an almost inaccessible point. But that is deliberately done. That is deliberately to say you can't go beyond that point. You're at a dead end. And I, by the way, always think that a building without a point is a pointless building. <laughs> <laughs> you do you know you do you make great use of points in your buildings well they really it's the it's like the spire on a church but sometimes going off at an angle that's true because you know it's spires were always going to a point but today our you know more secular environment is not really 
just about the heavens. It's about the point of the city. Look, when I designed the Denver Art Museum in the most beautiful city, uh, Denver, the, the Mile High City, I created a kind of point where the entire modern art gallery sort of narrows and points at the beautiful Geoponte building, which is a brother to, to my building. It's an extension of that building that I'm building for, and, and creates a sort of a spectacular gallery where something completely new can be exhibited and is exhibited because it's a very wild, fantastic collection that Denver Art Museum has. So yes, these, these are not really accoutrements or uh, sort of modalities of fantasy or of eccentricity. They are really functioning spaces and you have to shape them in a way to make a museum work or even an apartment building does not have to have just right angled walls. It's, it's a little monotonous always to be in the same space. I've heard you say something very interesting that you want to express the history of the place, not just not just express something with the building itself, but the building somehow situated in a, in a place. That, what, do you, what do you mean by that? That's a profound re- remark that you just pointed out, because a building is not a standalone unit or so, some sort. It's part of an environment. It really has to be a sort of a compass, in a way, to orient you to all the dimensions, to where you are, and not only the visible dimensions, the less visible ones as well, and sometimes the invisible dimensions, especially when we talk about memorials. Uh, we are not pointing to anything that is obvious. We are pointing to an invisible realm of memory, which is not there in front of you, but it comes to you when the past becomes present. So yes, there's no doubt that a building is not a standalone sculpture. It's not a standalone object. It's really part of the total environment in which we are. And it's not only the physical environment, it's also the spiritual environment. This is related a little bit, I think, to your design of the Military History Museum. You did a couple, I think, didn't you? Well, yes. Yeah, I designed the Imperial War Museum in Manchester. Manchester, I used the notion of the globe, which has been shattered by conflict. Uh, and, and I've re-erected these, these shards of conflict, the air shard, the, the earth shard, the water shard, in a sort of composition right on the ship canal to remind us that the world we are in is not the perfect globe we see you know, on, on television, it, it's, we live in a, in a shattered world where, where the fragments have to come back together if we're going to have peace. In Dresden, it's very different. I created a, a very striking wedge-like form, which is actually a, a perfect compass that shows you the three points in the triangle of the three bombs that fell on Dresden in the Allied bombings of 1945 and destroyed the city completely. And I really made that space where when you enter it and you, you're in it, you're in the triangulation of the bombing and you're looking at a city rebuilt, but you're within that void and very precise geometric void because where those bombs fell are very precise uh, in order to orient the bombers to bomb. So yes, th- these are not uh, uh, mild sort of metaphors. They are very precise uh, operations architecturally and they create a space that can be viscerally understood. It's interesting I, that is, I would imagine some number of people who come to a military history museum are coming to see the history of weapons, how they developed, what, how they improved, how they got more efficient at killing people. And you, with your sensibility, is giving them an opportunity to question the whole idea of what the weapons are used for. 
Absolutely. I, I, you know, I, I think both, you know, they're two very different societies. You know, UK was part of the Allied, Allied uh, effort to wipe out Nazism and, and, and destroy fascism in Europe after such catastrophes of millions of people dead. Uh, Germany was a perpetrator of those crimes. But in both cases, I sought to, each one in their own context, to show the horrors of war, to make people think about why wars happen. And so, yes, they are very different museums. They speak uh, different languages in a way, but they deal with raising the questions. And there are no easy answers. For sure, there are no easy answers here. When we come back from our break, I talk with Daniel Liebeskind about the role of wonder in his architecture and how he considers light, not wood or concrete, to be his most important building material. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other and all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you, either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm, I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. Chapter 1. Wayfair welcomes you to the neighborhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waverhood, she said, where Wafer helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trendsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. Adventure has its own style. It's made up of tall trees, unpaved trails, and at the center, the most capable Subaru Forester yet. The 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness. It comes with 9.2 inches of ground clearance paired with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and advanced dual-function X-Mode. Discover adventure on a deeper level. The 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness. Visit Subaru.com wilderness to explore the family of rugged Subaru Wilderness models. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Daniel Liebeskind. I've heard you say that architecture is resistant to change and that wonder allows change. In what way does architecture resist change, and what's the place of wonder in all of that? Uh, that's a beautiful question. Well, wonder, I, I mean, wonder is the basis of humanity. I think the, the idea that there is a question in the world that, that we can raise a question, why are we here? What are we doing here? Where are we going? Who are we actually? That's a, the ultimate human wonder, that we can raise that question, that we can look at the world in, in a way that is kind of innocent of all the propaganda that we've swallowed from birth. And, and of course, that is part of 
the wonder of architecture because architecture can also pose these questions. So yes, I think our, our architecture is part of the wonder of the world. And look, I always think that in size, the DNA, in, in physics, in computer size, in, 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 in all these fields, we have gone so far beyond what people did 10,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago. But in architecture, we still live pretty much like people lived thousands of years ago. Nothing can, much has changed because architecture is very resistant. You know, it's hard to move people, you know, in, into a different direction. It's perplexed me. Here's Freud speaking about the mind, the, the psyche, and, and, and positing all sorts of dreams as, as, and solutions to those dreams. But where does he live? He lives in a small, you know, uh, living room, typical Viennese living room with the same sofa, the same four lamps. Mies van der Rohe, that great thinker of, you know, open space. Where, where does he live? He lives in Chicago in the same kind of room with four lamps in the corners and the table. So, <laughs> there is something funny. Why haven't we relinquished this habit? Why, why haven't we... Why have we accepted to live in a box? So you use the notion of wonder and connect it to the natural tendency we have to strike out in new directions, to walk out of Africa and find other lands, for instance, discover new things about nature. A absolutely. There is no doubt that architecture will change very radically beyond our wildest dreams. It just takes a very long time. You've also said that optimism drives architecture. What do you mean by that? What, how does optimism, how is that connected to architecture? Well, look, you can be a pessimist in any other profession. As a poet, as a musician, you can write in a minor key. You can, you can be a pessimist as a general. You can be a pessimist as an economist, as a doctor. You can be a, you know, you, you can be a pessimist in every profession except for architecture. Why? Because in architecture, you are drawing and building a foundation always for something to come. It's, it's, it takes a long time to even build a small building. So you're positing by, by digging the soil that the world is going to be a beautiful world. It's not going to be a, sort of a, a dark and gray world. It's going to be a wonderful world with sunlight and wonderful people coming to that space and, and love and, and spirit. That's why architects are driven by a positive outlook, by Optimism. I, I always say, you know, if you want to be an architect, that's the only thing you need to have. If you're a pessimist, you might as well not go into it because it'll destroy you because architecture doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah, you've mentioned light a couple of times, sunlight, the four lamps in the room. <laughs> Is light one of the things that you work with in an unusual way? Do you, do you plan the lighting or explore new ways to light a space? I, I think light is the fundamental material in my work. If somebody says, what is the material that you, that you use? I wouldn't say it's concrete or wood or glass. I would say the material I work with is light. Light determines really the entire, the entire sense of how you build a space. Of course, then you need not just glass and, and, and concrete and bricks, but you need other uh, technology. But light is, is the leading uh, protagonist of architecture, in my view, has always been. So is that just light coming in from the outside, or is it? do you design ways for light to be produced indoors that are different from what we've seen, 
avoiding the four lamps in the room. Yeah. Well, of course, you have to think of, oh, and we have many new technology which can bring internal light in unexpected ways. But also it's the light in, in, in a person's eye that produces the effect itself. It's not just the, the physical light that we can measure uh, on an on a objective scale. It's also the light that is in the mind that illuminates space. Look how much light there was sometimes in complete darkness because people had the spiritual sense that this darkness was just a facade beyond which there was light. So yes, I think the way the building works can actually illuminate even a dark space. Uh, that That's very complicated, that thought, which reminds me that you seem to be tending more toward complexity than simplicity as a, as a goal. For a long time, the simpler was considered the better of the two. Yes. But you seem to value complexity. Uh, oh, definitely. I mean, I never understood this idea, like, it was simple, simplify, simplify, simplify. Because the human mind is not, not a simple entity. And what we see with our eyes is, is complex. And we are complex beings. I've always thought, you know, how strange. You know, if you look at uh, watch companies, the more expensive the watch, the better the watch, they say it has more complications. So the value of a watch goes by complex complexity. The more complication, let's let's say it has not just a second hand, it is a moon phase, it has a repeater, it has an alarm within the watch, it even has an annual or even a permanent calendar built. So that's called the complication. So the watches, the more expensive, the more fantastic, the more complicated. Yeah, I think it's not by coincidence that the technology of a watch is related to the technology of architecture. To me, complexity. Not not complication, but complexity. Many different elements working together. Yes, it, many elements. You know, there's a line in a Shakespeare sonnet that I memorized, which says, simple truth is not simplicity. <laughs> That's Shakespeare. Simple truth is not simplicity. So, of course, to, to really create a rich environment, one needs to create something that, that touches all those different dimensions. It's not just reduced to some functionality that is really not up to the level of human desire. Well, so you said an interesting thing. You said the more complex the watch is, the more expensive it is. And it seems to me that that probably works with buildings too. The boxy building is probably much less expensive to make, to build, than one of your designs that shoot well, off well, in directions. That's that, a complete myth. Well, tell, tell me about that. That's a complete myth. To make a perfect right angle is far more difficult. You've got to spend years making it so that you can actually afford it. We've just gotten used to the mythology because it's very hard to make it. Actually, it, when you kind of release that angle from the straight jacket, you can find much easier ways to build an angle, let's say, of 89 degrees, or 87 degrees, or 83 degrees. So it is uh, true that by building a lot of angles which are all the same, you might have the industrial advantage but there is really no uh, premium on building an interesting geometric uh, building. And by the way, the buildings I built are actually, you know, if you compare the, the buildings I've built with these complex, are no more expensive than a, a regular box. That's so interesting. I'm picturing in my, in my mind 
buildings you've designed with curves that are so extreme, like a half a one one remind, reminded me of a half a donut. How you can make all of those layers work into that shape sounds much more difficult to do and expensive than than a straight up and down building. Well, it, it's more interesting. And by the way, it's more interesting for people who build it as well. If you build just the same thing that everybody else has built, the same formulaic uh, sort of catechism, people are bored doing it. They're lazy. They don't want to do it. They've done it a million times. But when you create just a departure from it, you see that the workers are more interested in building it because there is a challenge. I think the human mind sort of responds to doing interesting things. So, you know, monotony is not, uh, we're not born with mon- monotony in our, in our being. We're born with, as you said, wonder. And I think that goes for the entire uh, industrial process of architecture. I've proposed things that engineers in the beginning said, oh my God, how will that ever get built? And yet at the end, they said, wow, we had the most fun ever working <laughs> on this building. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine it. I was directing a movie once and I said, let's put the camera here and we'll see the Manhattan Bridge over there. We'll see the apartment we're going into over here. And the camera assistant said, yeah, great. Well, that's two feet over there is where Woody Allen put the camera. Two feet over here is where the other guy put the camera. <laughs> he was bored by the shot. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think, you know, to make a good piece of uh, architecture building that, that will really be sustainable in, in one's mind, it has to be memorable. You know, things that have kind of amnesia built into them uh, can be easily forgotten and erased, and they're not really sustainable. But a building that has a power, like like an old building that we love, we want to keep it because it says something to us. It means something to us, and we take care of it because of that. The picture I'm getting in my head from what you just said is Bel Air in, in California, in Los Angeles, where very expensive houses are one next to another. Beverly Hills, yeah. same thing. And it's a cacophony of styles. Yeah. Moroccan <laughs> next to French, next to very modern looking yeah. stuff. When you put up a building in the midst of other buildings, are you challenged by the other buildings? What do you What do you do to not make it look like a hodgepodge? Well, it's always a conversation with what is around. I'm building a, a, a social housing in Brooklyn, and I finished a project in in. Long Island, uh, New York, and, and building one in Bedford-Stuyvesant, the Sumner Houses, uh, really social housing uh, with 20% for homeless people. And still, I didn't create some sort of a image of a box in which people are kind of imprisoned because it's a low-cost building. I tried to create something that is, you know, that has an atrium, that is uh, infused with light, that has a different form on the street. Because all of that is really the sense of communicating that something wonderful is happening there, that that, that starting with a unit of the person who lives there, a small but beautiful unit where the windows are not repetitive. Each window has its own character, its own. So, yes, there is something between hodgepodge of kitsch and, and sort of stupidity and between the kind of mindless monotony that the dictators like. It's somehow the, the, the good mean that something is interesting and yet conforms to the integrity of a city. 
Well, I knew our conversation was going to be about communication in an interesting way, and it certainly has been. <laughs> it's, it's been so great talking with you. We, we're running out of time, but we always end our show with seven quick questions. Okay. Roughly to do with communication. Okay, here's the first question. What do you wish you really understood? I wish I really understood why stupidity of humanity is so wide. I don't understand it. <laughs> what we've learned ought to have reached more of us. <laughs> How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Well, you know, facts are sort of indices of power. It's more about power than about facts. You have to struggle with that rather than with facts. Hmm. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Build me a private house. <laughs> <laughs> why, why is that strange? Because I started and, and was involved in very large projects, you know, from ground zero to mega cities to this and that. And then suddenly clients said, can you build us a small house? And my God, I rediscovered what a fantastically complicated task that is. Oh, that's interesting. See, that could be another whole other conversation. But, <laughs> I, but I, won't, I won't question you on that. How do you stop a compulsive talker? By giving him, a, a, giving him or her a wonderful cup of tea. <laughs> and, and you can talk <laughs> while they're drinking. <laughs> Maybe a, a bottle of vodka might do the trick even better. As Oscar Wilde said, don't interrupt me while I'm interrupting you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you never met before. How do you begin a genuine conversation? That's a hard one because I'm very shy. When I sit at the table, I probably would not initiate that conversation. But if I was to initiate that conversation, I would simply say, what color do you like? Oh. <laughs> 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 Have you ever tried that? No, not really. But, I, you know, if somebody says, you know, my favorite color is green, I'd be really already worried. <laughs> Wait a minute, why? <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> okay, next to last. What gives you confidence? That's a hard one to answer. Who knows? Who knows where it comes from? It doesn't come from me. Confidence doesn't, it's not something you produce from, from, uh, from yourself. It has to come from you, from, to you from elsewhere. Okay, good. Last question. What book changed your life? <laughs> there are so many, but I would say Bruno Schulz's uh, little book on tailor dummies, how tailors in Poland uh, use those dummies to pin their clothing on those, tail on those dummies. It's in a book called uh, The Street of Crocodiles by Bruno Schulz, an author who was unfortunately murdered during the Holocaust, but it uh, it really changed my view of architecture. A book about pinning clothes on dummies changed your view of architecture. This is a, perhaps the most unusual answer to this question we've ever got. <laughs> <laughs> it deserves just a, a brief explanation of how, what's the connection between the dummies it, and the architecture. The, the connection is between what a human being is and what a simulacrum is. Huh. And how do you distinguish between something that looks like a human being and can be clothed and you can create clothing that fits perfectly on it. But what is the difference between that and a living 
human being. Uh, that's really the question of architecture. Why? Because in architecture, it's the one field where you cannot simulate space. You have to build it. You can. You cannot simulate it on a computer. You can, but it has nothing to do with what your experience will be. That's why Brunelleschi, when he was building the Duomo in Florence, at the end convinced the city hall by saying, there is no way to show you what the feeling of this dome is going to be. The only way you will become a great city like Florence, you have to build it, and then you'll be the greatest city. So architecture is the one field, no matter what we do, unless you simulate a box, and we already know what a box is, but everything else cannot be simulated. This has been really fun. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alan. You're fun. You ask difficult questions. I hope I don't sound like a total fool, but foolishness is part of life, so let it be. (laughs) You were so entertaining and and provocative, and it was really great. I, I appreciate it very much. Alan, thank you so much. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. You can explore Daniel Liebeskin's many stunning buildings at his website, Liebeskin.com. That's L-I-B-E-S-K-I-N-D dot com. And you can read about his unique creative process in his lavishly illustrated book called Edge of Order. He's received many international awards, including this last February, the Dresden International Peace Prize. He's the first architect to be so honored. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohini, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with cosmologist Michael Turner. We wanted his reaction to the amazing images being taken by the James Webb Space Telescope, starting with his reaction to the very first image beamed back to Earth as the telescope was still being prepped. Here they are. It was supposed to be a calibration showing how they had gotten all the mirrors aligned. And so there's a bright star at the center, but a lot of us weren't interested in the bright star at the center. We saw all these little fuzzy galaxies at the edges, and we said, oh my God, this thing really works. And then of course, the, when in July, they released the first light images, and you could compare galaxy by galaxy, and they just jumped right out at you. And some of them emitted the light that we see today when the universe was only a few hundred million years old. 13 and a half billion years ago, and that's amazing. Michael Turner, and how the Webb Telescope is already revolutionizing our view of the universe. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter 
at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Chapter 1. Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waberhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trinsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. Adventure has its own style. It's made up of tall trees, unpaved trails, and at the center, the most capable Subaru Forester yet. The 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness. It comes with 9.2 inches of ground clearance paired with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and advanced dual-function X-Mode. Discover adventure on a deeper level. The 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness. Visit Subaru.com wilderness to explore the family of rugged Subaru Wilderness models. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.